welcome to the Geoscience Futures Podcast. Conversations with thought leaders from business, academia and the third sector about the future of the earth sciences. Our guest this time is Scott Tinker, who leads the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas. Although these days, Scott might be better known to some as the driving force behind films like Switch, which explores issues around energy access and the energy transition. Scott is hugely passionate about the need for the economy and the environment to, as he puts it, play well together. And he sees geoscience as a vital part of that relationship. We're joined, as usual, by my project partners, Cam McQuig and Neil Evans, and it's a great discussion. I mean, few people come away from listening to Scott without feeling inspired. So sit back and enjoy one of the best geoscience communicators in the world. So, so I mean, you, probably more than anyone I know, has looked ahead. I mean, I know the industry does this, but you've looked across that whole sector. I mean... If we're looking 2030, 2040, 2050, how do you see geoscience changing as we approach those decades? That's interesting. I hope I hope the fundamentals remain at universities where you're really truly learning fundamental science in yeah. geoscience. Yeah. There's a risk, I think, that it goes more toward a softer component and, and the scientific may be lost a bit in that. I think I think science needs to understand, underpin geoscience still. And there are other places to do studies, environmental studies and other kinds of things, to be sure. Social, political, legal, um, et cetera. But, but I think um, the geoscience needs to remain underpinned by that. Now, what, what builds on top of that is interesting. You know, some leads toward jobs in academia, some leads toward jobs in labs and, and, and national research centers, others to the industry. I think, I think geosciences has a strong role to play in still providing resources to the world and helping that understanding. And in doing so, making sure we do it with environmental stewardship. Mm. That's such a powerful role for geoscientists to play, recognizing that if we don't grow it, we mine it, but let's do it really well. And that's kind of where my passion lies, is making sure that the extractive industries and the environment and the economy all play well together. I, those are a critical juxtaposition. You know, you've heard me talk about it, you know, for decades ad nauseum, won't this guy shut up? <laughs> but uh, it's so important. You can't extract the economy from, from the environment, from yeah. energy. You know, these all come together. And so that's, I think that's the rule for geoscientists in the future. Do you think that, that notion of stewardship and sustainability is now becoming embedded in geoscience? I mean, do you sense that? I think so, more and more. Um, what seems to be lost, depending on where you are in the world, so I'll say the U.S. and maybe Western Europe, uh, perhaps sometimes without thinking about the actual resource need. <laughs> so we seem to say, hey, we'll just we just won't mine anything. You know, well, yeah. then we won't have batteries. <laughs> Well, we won't extract any fluids or gases. Well, then we won't have half of our world's energy. So yeah. it varies where you are geopolitically, as you well know. And I've been lucky to be in 65 countries in the world. And and so if you go to Asia today, coal is alive and well, especially Southeast Asia. There are reasons for that. 
just like in Germany and England and the United States who built our economies on coal. I'm not saying yeah. they're, they're great reasons, and maybe we can do other things. But So it varies. Um, that, that linkage depends. If you're in the Middle East, if you're in Africa today, just beginning to lift yourselves, emerging economies, South America, et cetera. You see quite a quite a disparity in understanding and passion for those components. But I would love to see, and I know you're the same, would love to see these infused more so that both the extraction and the environment come together to play well, because they can. You know, they will. If, if they aren't playing well, one's going to play poorly because we're going to continue to extract stuff. So let's do it well. Yeah. So looking ahead, skill sets. Do you see the same skill sets? I mean, you've alluded to this a little bit. Same skill sets operating in 20, 30 years' time that we that geoscientists have now? A bit. Um, for sure, some of the same skill sets. But what's so powerful now is is the access to data and then the ability to analyze those data in ways that were more difficult before. When I was in graduate school, I'm dating myself here, I bought the very first Macintosh, the Apple. You know, it was a 128K machine, 128K. Yeah, there was no hard disk. So, you know, and now my kids, I have a geologist and an engineer and an economist who's in grad school now and then still one in college. Three of them are in data analytics in different ways, writing code, bringing data sets together, working to understand the interplay across the disciplines that we've always talked about and known the power, but never really had the ability like we do today to truly investigate those interrelated relationships, okay? And that's very powerful. And it blows holes in some of our concepts and our dogma. <laughs> you yeah. know, the things we just know we know, but just ain't so, as Mark Twain said. That's the things that bite you, right? And I, I love that thought of bringing data to bear and geoscience right at the core with fundamental information. So in terms of um, one of the things in a lot of places we're struggling getting people into geology now, I, I'm interested in your, your thoughts on that, but you know, how would you sell geology to, to a, a kind of, you know, an executive level or a politician, someone who's smart and making decisions, but, but isn't, doesn't really know what, what geoscience is. Why, why would you say geoscience is important, something to invest in? Yeah. Well, I would smile and say geology is the heart of all sciences. <laughs> That's why it's called geochemistry and geophysics and geo-everything. You know, it's an integrative science. It brings in biology. It brings in chemistry. It brings in physics and maths. And it brings in environmental sciences. So when you start to think about geoscience, it truly is an integrative science. You have to know some things about all of them, and it matters so much to our future. Depending on how far we go in, in energy, let's just pick energy because I like to talk about energy, but renewable energy is interesting. The sun and the wind are renewable, heat and light and motion, but the stuff to extract, extract that energy isn't. So wind turbines and solar panels and, and batteries aren't renewable. There's nothing renewable about them. We mine them, we manufacture them, they wear out, we dispose them in landfills or recycle, and we do it again. So that is so critical for people to begin to understand. And, and you go in oil and gas and coal. Um, so these are, these are things policymakers, I think, are trying to perhaps make a little too simple. 
the good and the bad, the clean and the dirty, the black and the white, if we could just do this. And I just was reading this morning, Ian, a study out of NREL, the National Rural Energy Lab, saying we better get ready for landfill disposal with solar panels. As we ramp to scale, we are a long way away from ready for the amount of landfill disposal that's going to go on. Sure, we can recycle some. We're oh, And this is out of NREL. Good on NREL. You know, some of us have been saying this for a long time. Just like, I mean, I'm not saying oil and gas and coal are clean, but by all means, they're not. But, but at all. But, but nothing is. And so that's where I think the power of good geosciences can come to bear, again, is bridging across these things and helping us see the full cycle. You know, that life cycle effect from extraction all the way back to the earth. What does that look like? And in terms of the message for some 16, 17-year-old in school trying to look ahead, is it the same message for them? Because I kind of get the feeling we've got a different, I know with my students, a different set of mindset coming in, much more environmentally aware, much more connected globally, uh, connected to issues. How, do you, how would you sell geoscience in that direction? Uh, I, would, I would suggest that the most powerful place to be, if you truly want to... Um, help and cause change is on the inside. You know, if if you truly want to help BHP, ExxonMobil, um, Microsoft, one of the largest consumers of energy on the planet, or Amazon, if you truly want to help them be environmentally aware, become part of the organization. I was just talking to my good friend who's the head of energy for Microsoft now, and he was at Google. Uh, Daryl Willis, and, and Daryl was saying, yeah, he has the ear of the CEO now. He reports directly as vice president there. And so he can affect change. You know, he can he can help Microsoft understand how much electricity they're consuming, tremendous amounts. The cloud consumes 3% of the world's electricity, just the cloud. So it emits 400 million tons of CO2 every year, <laughs> and you can only buy so many credits, okay? Those credits can only be sold once if they're working. <laughs> So he can help from the inside. And I would say to students, geosciences provides you that integrative background, that truly critical thinking, problem-solving background to which you can then become part of solutions going forward. And I think it's so important to think about being in the the not-for-profit, but also the for-profit industries that are going to continue to drive progress and then help them be where they need to be. And, you know, I'll say back to those 65 countries, almost everywhere I've been are China. China is present in every country, extracting resources, building rails, getting citizenship, investing and loaning money. China will not be slowed. 1.3 or 4 billion people are going to extract the world's resources. So you, if you really want to affect change, be part of the system that helps all of us do that well. And that's not a short pitch to a student, but a short pitch would be, you want to be part of the solution? Study geosciences. Nice. I, I'm looking, my battery's running low. You guys might have to take over, but is there anything else that when you talk to people you try and impress them with in terms of the urgency or the importance of some of this? Well, I try to have them. Hans Rosling wrote this beautiful book called Factfulness, and I love it. You know, it was he's a medical doctor, passed from Sweden, and in it, buried deep in the back, 
you know, in a paragraph right in the middle, I extracted it said something like data should be used to understand, but not to persuade, no matter how noble the cause. And so I really think it's important, and I try to encourage and communicate that for critical thinking, looking at the pros and the cons from all aspects of these big issues, because nothing is black and white and simple. I call it the radical middle, where everything overlaps. That's, you know, that's my term, the radical middle, where you come in and really try to understand the data, you compromise, you look at multiple perspectives, because nobody's trying to do good or bad. Nobody's trying to do harm, really. I mean, a few people, maybe, but, but really not for the most part. So that's what I try to impress upon all of us, is to make sure we don't go too far to, down an advocacy or an activism route, which precludes our ability to think critically about the things we're not actively promoting. And, and because there's always surprises. You know, our intentions are here, and then the outcomes quite often are different. And there's so many examples of this in science and beyond in the economy. But that's really important, Ian, is that for the scientists particularly, to have that little bit longer view and make sure we're looking at all aspects and, and doing the good work to provide information to those who have to make more um, you know, daily, weekly, monthly policy regulatory decisions. And I suspect that's increasingly hard as you get to the profile of you getting pulled in to talk to policymakers, not to become that advocate or that slippery slope down to an activist for a particular cause. You know, I'm not smart enough to be an activist. <laughs> I, I, I just understand things at a fairly basic level. So, you know, whether it's industry who can go too far down the economy road or whether it's academics who sometimes go too far down the environment road or or whether it's, you know, uh, you get people in governments that are pushing too far down something else. It, you just encourage them to pull back a little bit and look at these other perspectives and consider them. That's all. You know, Aristotle said it best. It's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. And all we need to do is entertain some thoughts. We don't have to accept all of them. But make sure we're at least able to entertain them without being shouted off of, you know, social media or shamed, you know, in, in a committee hearing or by our colleagues in academia. Boy, we better be entertaining some thoughts because we're just not that smart. These are complex, multivariate, nonlinear systems. And we, as we've already talked, the climate system is a brutal system to model. You know, that's why there's a big range in future outcomes from the best modelers. You know, it's just hard. So all all natural systems are difficult. And I think that's where it's so important to make sure we're not uh, going too far there. We might have lost Ian, at least to my yeah, opinion. Yeah, no, he, he looks as if he's going. Hey, I have a question, actually. Um, you know, as we, you know, we had the of having both you and Ian on the, on the call and, you know, both well-renowned communicators in geoscience. Do you think we do, other than you guys, do you think we do a good job as a community in communicating what we do? Could always do better, Neil. Yeah. You know, it it, uh, it varies depending on the subject and where you are, again, geopolitically, but we could always do better. I think a lot of scientists like to do their science and and pushing into that public communication world is more difficult, understandably. 
mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of brutal. You're going to get beat up on and somebody's going to, you know, say, hey, you're an idiot online. And well, you know, I'm really not an idiot, but, <laughs> you know, so it's safer and, 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 and feels a little better just to kind of stay back here with the science. So I think we could do better on that. I think I think um, also on the future of geoscience, the, the idea that, you know, if you wanted to save, if you really want to save the planet, right, and, 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 and save the world, which, which is kind of a, a theme that I get from, from what, what I see my daughters being taught, you know, in high school and, and, and what they are talking about with their friends. And really, if you, if you want to save the earth, then how can you do that if you don't understand the earth system? And if you don't understand how the, 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 the lithosphere and the hydrosphere and the atmosphere and the biosphere interact on different time scales, right? And uh, I, I think that's just, it, I, I always thought that when, when I took an earth science course, it was like I was seeing the world in black and white and then I could see in color. Mm-hmm. Because everywhere I went after that, I just thought differently about every single landscape. Right? You, you almost feel sorry for people that don't have some grounding in earth science, and it would just be great if we could get that into people at an earlier age. Most high schools don't teach geology or geoscience. Right? That's right. And that's right. Yeah. And that's, at the end of the day, part of what pushed me toward the filmmaking side of things and not so much for earth science Ian does a wonderful job with that and others do as well but more for the energy and the environment component of that that's what pushed me that direction is communicating with film but i'll tell you to do truly not, we're all biased as you say we all are biased by our own experiences etc so to get nonpartisan, we have all our films peer-reviewed and i don't mean by just by filmmakers and editors by actual scientists so our Switch Energy Lab, which is the white lab coat and me and glasses and doing 29 experiments that are used in schools all over the world, literally, we had those peer reviewed by you know, PhD physicists, undersecretary of energy, a professor at Berkeley, et cetera. And they came back with some little things. I had misrepresented how the nuclear you know, fusion reaction happened in simple terms. So we had to re-record all these things and, and, and yeah. edit them in. So that they're factually accurate. Accuracy and nonpartisanship is so important to, to durability of something, but also to helping our kids come away with, with real information so that they don't feel duped later. Because <laughs> right now yeah. they are hearing, I promise yours are and mine did, mine are all out of college, but, but they're hearing things that are only partially part of the story. A component of the story, not looking at multiple sides of the story. And I'll give you an example. Here's an here's a question on an exam from the AP Environmental Sciences course in U.S. high schools. So you take an AP test at the end of the year, and it said, "What are the environmental benefits of offshore wind?" And so the students lists all the benefits of offshore wind to the environment. And one of them was replacing dirty fossil fuels. That was in the answer key. Okay, and then the next question said, what are the environmental impacts of tar sands? 
And they didn't use oil sands. They used tar. The impacts only. So the kids write all the bad stuff about tar sands and all the good stuff about wind. The question itself led them to non-critical thinking. They weren't being asked, what are the pros and cons? What are the the challenges of offshore wind? Giant cement plugs on the ocean floor, huge floating platforms. And where does all the stuff come from? And how do you get it to shore? Oh, power, you know. Oh, wait. And where does it go? Well, we just going to dump those big blades in the ocean when they wear out. (laughs) You know, and I'm not saying offshore wind isn't good for some things, but it isn't all good. And tar sands or oil sands, let's call them themselves, what are the positive aspects of having access to oil? What's SAG-D look like compared to mining? When you're moving a little 10-acre plot of trees and putting in horizontal wells and extracting them with with steam-assisted gravity drainage and then selling the trees to the forest uh, service by design and then moving it and replanting, what's the environmental impact? Very different from the open pit mining which is only 15% of it. So, you know, we're not asking even questions that are requiring critical thinking. And that's where my passion comes in is to say no. And so now Switch is going to be providing the month of energy in that year-long class to AP Environmental Sciences. We've been working for two years with the teachers, with a platform that we've designed, the films, the questions. I've literally edited all the multiple choice and short answer questions for five modules of energy for 200,000 kids a year who take that class. We're going to pilot it to 400 teachers starting in September. And then we hope to go all 6,000 teachers. And it's, it would be great for the world. It's free and it's online. So this is the kind of thing that you have to make sure it's critical thinking. You have to make sure you get peer review. There's a lot of documentary films today, you know, you know, Cam and Neil, and you know, that are, entertaining and they're dramatic and they scare the hell out of our kids but there's a lot of factual edginess to them like sometimes they're just wrong yeah. okay and yeah. they're and they're and they're intentionally wrong they they intend to be dramatic yeah. and mislead and scare you and that works but it's not right okay yeah yeah it's, it's funny a, we, it's, a, it's a real i was just going to say it's a real the the the, the, the art is to, to train the trainers like you're doing, which is fantastic, and, and also to, to influence the influencers. So, so who, who is it that's actually getting the ear of the future generation? Right. And how, you know, which ones of those, because you can't, some of them have a real agenda, right? So which ones of those actually are trying to put out the right message but not quite right? In doing so, you know that they, reaching those types of people. So mm-hmm. one is teachers, obviously that's a clear one. But the, the, it, it, it'd be interesting to identify other avenues. You know, where is it that that people are going to get their belief system from in the future? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, and it crosses multiple sectors. Obviously, the family matters, and whatever that looks like. There's a lot of you. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> the reason that expression, it really doesn't. It might roll a little bit, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but you know, we're we are ingrained by our own family and our own larger nuclear uh, beyond the nuclear families. You know, you're, we're ingrained in our belief systems there, and then uh, schools, of course, and then friends and friend networks, and then as you start to get up out of that, you start to see 
um, governments and policymakers in different ways, industries in different ways, non-government, non-profits, and a lot of kids are passionate about joining non-profits. And I'm fine with that. I think that's terrific. But I typically ask them when they come up to me and say, I'm going to join a nonprofit. And I'll usually say, do you have a problem with profit? And they stop <laughs> because all the way through college, nobody's ever said that to them. I said, you know, you know what profit does? What? It's bad. It's big industry. It's bad. I said, well, actually, it provides everything we have, but it also it pays a lot of taxes and it, it helps to fund all of the different things that you're passionate about. And it helps the people who support nonprofits are making profit over here so they can put money into the nonprofits. So being in a for-profit industry can be very important, very good for the environment if you're working on the inside. So these are the kinds of things that that um, I don't think our young people are getting until deep into university and sometimes beyond. And that's where we can all play a role. And even, even um, big international organizations like the UN and the World Bank and, and the World Health Organization in the pandemic and others that are communicating information on a broad sense, they have a very important role of diligence to play, make sure they're doing it objectively. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we, we interviewed um, Denise Cox the other day and, and she talked about the fact that one of the most important things is we're not having the debate. And, um, and, and I think that's one of the things that you bring into it to see both sides. And, and it's either one side is so polarized or the other side. And, and I think that's, that's something we've got to bring into the kids earlier, sooner as we can. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. It's a, it's a message we're getting across um, yes. a lot of these interviews, which is good. So I'm conscious of time, um, you know, is there anything else you'd like to say in this subject, Scott, before um, we leave you go? And we're obviously going to come back to you and show you where we where we get with all this, because we're going to be doing a lot of these interviews over the, the next period. Right. Yeah, I, I think I'll kind of wrap with the thought that, you know, um, civil discourse matters. <laughs> Civility, uh, the willingness to listen and respond is important because everybody has good ideas and different experiences. So I'm quite concerned about some particular forms of media that don't require civil discourse. It, it allows us just to say things we would never say to someone in person and to shame them and to group shame them and, and to, you know, just, so I would really think it's important and I, and social media is terrific. Yeah, allows you within a short amount of time to communicate globally. But civility matters because we're none of us are that smart. None of us are anointed with wisdom beyond <laughs> the individual. Uh, even though at times some governments seem to think they are, <laughs> U.S. included, <laughs> all governments, um, they're not. They're not smarter than markets. They're not smarter than individuals. And so. I think it's really important as we go down these paths to encourage and even at some level to the point we can require civil discourse, you know, nonpartisan, critical thinking, civil discourse, so that we can listen to one another and learn from one another. And that's how these big issues will be solved. If we stay polarized, 
and out in our little corners may feel good. And you may be able to stream a thousand feeds to yourself every morning that agree with you. And now you think you're completely right. <laughs> but just try streaming a thousand that don't agree with mm-hmm. you and see how if they're just idiots or maybe they're saying some things that you haven't thought about or in a different way. And that's what I mean by the radical middle or civil discourse. How important it is for each of us to get in there and and interact. And that's how we're going to address many of the big global issues today, from pandemics to climate change to providing energy to the poor. And my latest passion, as you guys know, is is energy poverty. Let's call it energy access, energy inequality. And that's what Switch On is about. It's a film that we made over the last three years in Kenya and Ethiopia, Nepal, Vietnam and Colombia. So multiple continents looking at no electricity access in the in the rural areas, uh, lack of affordability of electricity or access in slums and big city slums and clean cooking, which affects a third of the world's people. It's so important. So when you start thinking about a third of the world not having reasonable access to energy and all of that implies from from economic poverty to clean cooking, to water, to housing, to education, the basic things. But then you take those further to rights and freedom of women who have to go for the water and cook indoors and immigration and migration, and fertility rates directly tied to education. It weaves into all of the big global issues. So energy access is fundamental to freedom. And and I don't mean to be too dramatic. <laughs> I'm not a dramatic person that way, but it underpins everything that is modern that gives us education and choice. So that is such an important topic. And anybody working in the energy industries then sometimes feels a little bit shameful today. And and they shouldn't. You know, when you're in an industry that is working to provide energy or materials, mining of other materials, whether it's batteries or wind turbine blades or solar panels to the world, you're saving the world. You know, you are doing something that that matters so deeply. You need to be proud of that. I'm in the energy business and I'm I'm lifting the world from poverty. You know, what is it you do? <laughs> and and so yeah. it just it puts a little different take on this conversation. And it's and by it has the benefit of being true, which is nice, <laughs> and and it's mm-hmm. so important. Well, thanks very much, Scott. Sure, really, it's been fantastic to meet you. I was really looking forward to it tonight. Excellent. Great. Thanks. Stay safe. Right, take care. Look after yourself. Talk to you. Talk to you soon.